Welcome to the Market Call Show. Today I have Craig Johnson on the call. He is the Managing Director and Chief Market Technician at Piper Sandler. He directs the Technical Research Group. He joined Piper Sandler in 1995 as an analyst in the firm's private client research. Johnson is frequently sharing his uh, technical views on CNBC and other major financial news networks. While his research is really often quoted in the financial press, He's a very personal guy. I have met him before. He has talked to groups here in Denver. And I'm really excited to talk about what's happening in the markets today and how that is affecting investors and what his research is showing compared to what the fundamentals are saying. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome to the Market Call Show, where we discuss what's happening in the markets and the impact on your investments. Tune in every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, Craig. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? And thanks for having me on the show today. Well, it's great to have you on. You know, I've, I've been watching your work for a long, long time, and we've been lucky to have you come to Denver to speak to us and seeing you in New York and have always enjoyed your work, especially from the, it seems like you have a really deep bottom-up approach to uh, looking at equities and also a broad uh, approach as well. And um, I was thinking that today we could just kind of dive in because there's so many different cross currents that are happening, a lot of fundamental ideas that people are talking about in the news. And what I love to do is to cross-check cross -check that against the technicals. And being that you're a technical uh analyst and uh, a longtime strategist in that field, analyzing the supply and demand of the securities themselves rather than just the narrative. I thought maybe we could just talk about some of the most common thesis that, that we're seeing out here and, and, and analysts are telling us and just see what the charts are saying. Is that, does that sound fair? I think that sounds awesome. And I think, you know, you hit on a very important point there, which is there are so many, so many cross currents, so many narratives going on at this point in time. And I think, I heard it phrased to me this way not long ago is there's two kinds of people out there, those that make the news and those that repeat the news. And so let's try to be in those that are making the news category, because I think that's where the value add really uh, comes into play. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. You've One of the things that I've noticed in your work that I've seen is that you've, you used to create this enormous chart book and, and that just went and that made me realize the bottom up nature of what you're doing. So. But if we would, can we just start at a little bit higher level? Because it seems like most of the narrative that we're hearing is very high level. I, I just read an article this morning, uh, actually Bill Gross, you know, who used to run money at PIMCO. Uh, I don't know if you saw that piece of news. He just came out saying that he thinks that uh, the rates have gone up too much, actually, in the two year. He said that, uh, you know, now that the Federal Reserve's got us uh, raising rates on the two year over the 10 year, he feels like the market's pricing in the bond market at around four and a half percent peak in rates. And he thinks that's too high and that maybe there's a buying opportunity in, in bonds. So maybe we could just start off with this bond market. And I know that's not the first place to start, but at a higher level, that kind of affects everything. So in terms of the narrative, in terms of two year bond yields, um, you know, yeah, I mean, you look at this sort of move you've got in two year bond yields. And if I just sort of step back and zoom out. Anybody that's been spending any time looking at charts, you're going to look at this and say, in the last year, we've gone from 24 basis points to 430 basis points where we are right now. If I zoom out, there's no question that the trend since uh, basically 
uh, here, which would be kind of early August timeframe, has been more along the lines of starting to make these higher highs and higher lows, a little bit of a shorter term bull flag here. And I won't get too technical talking about it, but it just sort of looks like to me that the trend is still higher, and but it is parabolic. And I'll be watching this line right here specifically. So any sort of break below about 4% is going to tell me that that trend is changing and perhaps the narrative that Bill Gross is talking about, which is they've gone too far too fast. Now, let's take a look. That's the short end of the curve. So let's take a look at the long end of the curve, you know, looking at 10 years. And um, as I look at the 10-year bond yield chart, uh, coming into today, uh, the last three days, rates had sort of moved back up and moved higher anticipation of uh, perhaps a uh, more inflationary concerns in the long end of the bond market. But it was just last week where we had this sort of break that we had seen take place right through here. And uh, we got right into this sort of range here. And then we just bounced off of this and have come right back up. I'm going to be watching these old highs in here to see if we actually break out. But again, come back and note that the longer term trend is still higher in here. And I'll be looking to see on this next move, do we break out the new highs? Now, let me also put that into context too with a longer term chart that I wanna pull up too, like a super long-term chart. And you'd mentioned our monthly publication. And then when I look at our monthly publication, uh, this is something again, we put out 10 times a year, hasn't changed. But look at the long-term trend on 10-year bond yields. Okay, this is a secular, I'm using the word secular, meaning long-term trend change that is taking place. And for all the listeners out there, why is this taking place? Nancy Lazar on our eco team explains this perfectly. The days of imported deflation are over and we're going to be facing higher prices going forward, period. You know, from the pandemic, people realize that having all of our supply chains over in China and in other parts of the world maybe isn't such a smart idea. And now you're seeing uh, some of these supply chains coming back to the U.S., and the days of buying super cheap goods at Walmart are probably over. Yeah, that that is such a profound thing. You know, I was sitting, and this was two years ago when we had our, the last time we had a meeting, a CMT meeting in uh, New York. I happened to be sitting next to Louise Yamada. And she kind of, you know, she's a, she's a smaller woman. She came over to me, she said, rates are bottoming right now. <laughs> <laughs> and she was right on the money. Yeah. And, she, and she had all these charts already printed out and she was showing showing them to me. Uh, actually, she's going to, I'm interviewing her, uh, I think next week too. But I, I, I agree, this theme, uh, a, a big secular trends, it might take a while for this to work its way through the system. And maybe this, you know, a lot of people are saying, hey, things are peaking right now. And uh, the other side of the narrative, which you keep reading is that, you know, the Federal Reserve is so far behind the eight car, you know, behind the curve because they have not uh, raised rates enough relative to the inflation rate. If you look at the Fed funds versus inflation, um, if you look at the supply constraints and the biggest thing that we I keep hearing and I want to get your opinion on this is related to energy, because, you know, I guess we are more energy independent or potentially could be more energy independent than Europe. And but we've chosen kind of not to through policy and OPEC is now starting to pare back a little bit on production, even though production is at an, you know, off the highs in oil. If you look at the million barrels per day, 
So what is what are your charts saying about energy and 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 oil prices? Sure. Now before I before I touch on that, just real quick, let me finish up one other thing. Sure. 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 Rates are going higher, and we're in this secular you know reversal in terms of long term rates. If you think back to the 1950s, 1960s, post World War II, we're starting to see this improvement. Uh, in yields going up. We had a lot of debt from the war back then. Stocks still can work in a rising rate environment. And even at, you know, a sub 4% or around a 4% 10-year bond yield is still not a historically high level. So don't get uh, pulled into the notion that with rates going up, that the market can't ultimately work because it can't. And once the Fed kind of gets inflation levels to where they want it to get, and mathematically you'll get there by sometime mid next year, uh, you know, don't don't think that equities can't work because they will work. OK, I just want to leave the listeners with that perspective. And from my viewpoint, I still think that uh, these lows we had seen in June are probably going to be lows that could be durable in here for a while. OK, mm. OK, interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I guess. Yeah, well, I was going to get a little bit more into that, like how it feeds into the equity evaluations and all of that. But I, I, that, that's a really strong point because sure. we, in history, we've had plenty of times when rates are rising and the market does well. Um, Correct. Um, and we can definitely get into that here in, in a little bit. Uh, but staying on the, the inflation theme and just the interest rate environment, because there's so much money in the bond market that has bonds have been really crushed, re, you know, relative to what I've seen in my career. I've been doing this for 27 years and that's been a pretty, pretty ugly bear market. Uh, in, in bonds. Um, so I, I, I'm trying to just kind of get a bead on, you know, how energy is, what is energy telling us about this inflation relative sure. to the charts? Yeah. Um, so if you look at the energy uh, prices right now, and if you look at the oil, what is, what are your, what is your work saying about the price of, of oil? And then also, is there anything bottom up that you're seeing where there's some trends that are happening that are, that are investable? Sure. So let's start with the, the commodity side with uh, the crude oil. So as I look at uh, crude oil itself, and um, again, we look at these charts every single day, um, but we've had a very nice move in, in crude oil prices. And just sort of keeping it simple here, we've had a little bit of a shorter term reversal in uh, crude oil prices here as of late, just looking here at the chart. And for me, it's like crude oil could now rally maybe back up toward this stick this 200-day uh, moving average, which is sitting around 97, posts this kind of shorter-term downtrend reversal. But if I come back and sort of look at the long-term perspective of crude oil, uh, this is where I look at it, and I'm kind of like coming off of these lows through here. We're sort of been breaking a bit of an uptrend in here, so we need to be sort of careful in the crude oil price. Now, that's on an absolute basis. Now, if we think about it from a relative basis, and again, there's only two things that portfolio managers care about is absolute trend, which we were just talking about, and then relative performance. And if we look at the relative performance of the energy sector itself, um, these are our long-term total return relative strength charts. And as I look at these charts, like there is no real indication that energy as a sector in the market is starting to roll over um, at this point in time, based upon what we're seeing. And uh, this is on an unweighted basis, and this is an equally weighted basis. And then if we come back and look at some of the longer term trends and themes inside of energy itself, I got to tell you, this, if you look at charts, this is not a, uh, this is not a short term sort of exhaustion move 
this looks like the start of some sort of new move in the energy markets itself. And I look at energy, all of the stocks inside of the energy sector itself. And when I go through and I look at some of the individual call-out groups that listeners are going to care about, this does not look like this is any sort of end of a trend. It sort of looks like it's the beginning of a trend. Mm, and you continuation, come through, yeah. Yeah, and you look at just these long-term trend changes happening. And you look at not only the absolute, but the relative performance looks pretty good. And then you come in and you look at these charts like ConocoPhillips, and it's like, okay, this is pretty interesting. The trend is still higher. Your relative strength trend is still very strong. So, again, coming back and thinking about energy itself, it doesn't look like it's at the end of a move. It still looks like it's in the early innings from my perspective. Mm. Yeah, so we, we basically have a potential self-reinforcing process that's happening because the fundamentals are saying that, you know, that we should have higher energy prices. And so is the, uh, the, the charts and Correct. not only the commodity, but also the energy, energy stocks themselves. Um, you know, uh, I mean, what, we do a lot of quantitative analysis as well in the stocks. That's one of the only areas where we have positive signal strength on uh, uh, an individual equities in the, in the domestic market. Um, you know, there's very few areas right at the moment that are um, generally in, in a positive mode. mode. Um, but but uh, that's interesting that you mentioned that. So if that's the case, then if we just go to the logical conclusion that what would that imply for further movements in the bond market? That I mean, based on what you showed me before, if this is a sec secular type of a trend in the interest rate, then that means we could have upside targets of maybe higher than 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 what people are expecting potentially or or or, or not is that going to your equation in any way well at this point in time if, if we think that energy is still going to continue to work in here it could also imply that inflation is is maybe going to be stickier than what people think uh, not only with higher commodity prices but maybe it's also going to be uh you know higher wages and the other piece of really making it stickier than, than where we've been and if that's indeed the case, then the Fed may have to continue to uh, continue to, to stand on the short end of the curve and try to slow things down. And in the meantime, um, perhaps you end up seeing the long end of the curve continuing to move up ultimately, right? Mm -hmm. This is kind of a catch-22 because you look at the headlines. German retail sales are slowing. European Central Bank is, you know, they're further behind the eight ball in terms of uh, raising rates than we are. The dollar is going up a lot because of this, partially because of this relative difference in uh, spreads. I mean, you look at the the rate differentials between us. You know, our we're sitting right now the ten year at three point eight four roughly. Germany's ten years at two point one six. France at two point seven. Of course, Japan's way down at, at twenty five bips. So, uh, you know, what's that mean for the dollar, and and, and how is that, uh, you know? I know the dollar seems appears to be overbought short term to a lot of technicians, but what does that mean longer term for for certain stocks that are that have you know uh, exposure to the dollar? Well, a couple of things. One, if we just parse, if we just kind of parse that question there a little bit, let's first identify the trend of what you see happening in the dollar. And if I just go back to the beginning of this year, I mean we've gone from ninety five on the DXY you know spot all the way up to 112. Um, some of the highs we've seen going back through history have been close to 120. And then after that, you're somewhere around 150, 160, if my memory serves me correct. So from that perspective, um, the stronger the dollar gets, 
the harder it's going to be for inter, uh, for emerging markets. And it's going to be sort of a challenge ultimately for crude oil prices to a degree if the dollar keeps going higher and higher and higher. Um, but also if the dollar keeps strengthening and you think about it from just a pure global perspective, higher dollar doesn't help many countries around the world. In fact, it makes a lot of their problems worse. And so the dollar, I think, can only go so high before the Fed is ultimately going to have to intervene because a lot of the problems we've seen in markets historically have happened when the dollar spikes too far too fast. And so we've got to be cognizant of the fact that um, having a super high, strong dollar uh, is not going to be a great thing. And it's not going to be great for exports and it's not going to be great for the big multinational companies. In fact, if you look at uh, the most recent earnings release from uh, Nike, they called out uh, the stronger dollar as certainly a headwind. They also called out weakness in Europe as definitely a problem, which not too surprising given what's happened in Ukraine and the fact that a lot of the higher energy prices are um, really sucking out of people's wallets the discretionary spending that they can ultimately do. And I would just say to other listeners out there, the two most important things you need for global markets and even the U.S. to work is you need uh, cheap food and you need cheap energy are the two things you ultimately need. Mm. Yeah, which we're not seeing at the moment. You are so not the, seeing that right now. And the yeah. Fed is trying to get that back is what they're yeah. trying to do. Yeah, the, the, the core rate, if we back that out, the core inflation rate still is higher than what's wanted by the central banks. Uh, so it, it it seems like we're in this situation. I almost feel like we might be in a situation where we have kind of recession deniers right now. You know, we, you know, where people want to just believe that somehow there's not going to be a recession. So given these themes, it's hard for me to envision a, a scenario where we don't go into a recession in the next year or, or, or if we're not in one right now. I mean, technically, one could argue that we're already in one. And, and I know, that, you know, labeling recession as an investor sometimes it's not really helpful, but it does affect people's kind of way of thinking in terms of their consumption. Uh, so have you seen any changes in your charts in the retail areas that are showing signs that maybe the consumer still is strong and that maybe this thesis, maybe we're not going into a recession? Well, I think the odds are that we probably are already in a recession. And if you went to the basic classic definition of recession, that's two quarters of sequential negative GDP growth. Now, Washington at this point in time will argue that we need to see a, a, a material jump in the unemployment rate for that to happen. But if you look at the report that came out today, the participation rate is actually going down. So that sort of high unemployment rate that they're hoping to get isn't seemingly going to happen um, at this point in time. But let's put into context the discussion about recessions themselves. So there have been 15 recessions since the Great Depression. And to put this into context, if you think you're already in a recession, think about this. There's only been one recession that's lasted more than three years. There have been four uh, recessions that have lasted more than a year. And there have been 10 recessions that have been less than one year in length. So put that all together. 10 of the 15 recessions historically have lasted less than a year just to put it into context. And if you think we're already in the recession now, then perhaps this isn't going to be a period like uh, the, the Great Depression where it lasted more than three years. And I find few takers that believe that we're entering a period that's similar to the dot-com bubble or uh, 08, 09 at this point. 
So if we're in a recession, that might actually be a good thing for equity investors. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, the, yeah, we, we've kind of punctured out some of the valuation bubble, if you will, already. Correct. Uh, and so the multiples are more in line with where rates are now, if you just kind of look at that relationship. Correct. Um, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, so the whole concept of that's why one of the reasons why I said the concept of a recession can be not helpful for investors, because usually by the time the news says we're in a recession, you're bought, you've bottomed and things are moving forward. Um, but at the very moment, uh, if you look at past declines based on your work, what would you say would be the kind of mid case scenario for equities overall, if we are in a recession that's that's normal versus one that's more more um, pronounced, you know, a, a more significant recession? How much more further down if if we would go down further? How much more down do you think we would have downside if it was a worse than average recession? Have if I that you, makes sense. Have I told you you ask wonderful questions? No. You ask wonderful questions, and we have some of these answers because we just discussed this in our monthly publication. And if this was to be a period such as the great financial crisis, you know, that lasted 637 days, peaked to the trough, and uh, you were down 49%. Um, if this is going to be something like the dot com bubble, uh, excuse me, that, that was the dot com bubble. If this was the great financial crisis, you were down 355 days and you were 56% peak the trough. So that would be more of the extremes. Put that into context with the depression, which was 680 days, and you declined 86% peak the trough. Now, if this is sort of a more normal sort of pullback, correction, sort of recession environment, you were kind of down about 20 to maybe 30-ish percent, kind of ballpark-ish. Even the COVID downturn was you know, was 33%. And some of the indices are already into that kind of vicinity already at this point in time, if you think more about small cap and growth indexes and some of those kind of things. Mm -hmm. So if this is going to be something very severe, you'd be talking 400 plus type days peak the trough. And right now you're about 180 change days into this. And most sort of recessions uh, have peaked the trough not really lasted uh, even that long at this point in time. Mm. So again, you look at it, there's a lot of pain already priced into this market. And I sort of get the sense from talking to a lot of folks that they're sort of pricing in a great financial crisis or something like that. But then you come around and you look at the bond market. Yeah, it's reversed and gone up. Yeah, some of the cheap money has gone away, but it is not like it's tremendously restrictive quite yet you're probably gonna to have to see more uh, tightness in M2 and money supply and those kind of things before this is ultimately done. But putting it into your context, you would argue that you're kind of sort of there, not only based upon historical recession periods, time peak the trough and also duration peak the trough. But also one other interesting thing to add in here too is if you think about going back and you've been doing this for 27 years, and you think back to when you started in the business and you think about 2000, 2007, 8, if we're going to get a bigger decline from where we are right now, we're going to essentially have said or essentially we're making the assumption that this market will have gotten cut by 50 percent, essentially three times since 2000. 
that's roughly a 50% decline about every, what, uh, five to seven years. Yeah, that's unprecedented if that were to happen. Well, it's it, it makes an extremely challenging environment for, quote, unquote, buy and hold investors. Mm -hmm. And they're going to have to be much more nimble. They're going to have to use technical analysis as a risk management tool. And they're going to have to use more professionals uh, like yourself and others to ultimately help them uh, understand and be guided through the journey that's happening. Because getting cut in half three times in a magnitude of 50% about every five to seven years doesn't feel like it's something that really meets a fiduciary trust rule of, I'm just going to buy and hold. Where's the risk management at that point in time? One thing we know for sure, this is not your parents' economy. I want to make available to you a copy of my book, The Financial Freedom Blueprint, the very first chapter you can download for free. And in that chapter, you'll learn on ways to stay ahead of the herd, how to invest in this crazy environment, and how to make sure your financial plans are on track. So go to pathtorealwealth.com and download your free copy today. Yeah, yeah. There's you. You need risk control. You need uh, massive diversification, and and you you need to have a, a discipline process for sure. Um, what are the process for sure? But I mean, in terms of diversification, uh, when these market downturns have happened, all the asset classes went down at the same time. Yeah, and, and exactly. When I, and <laughs> if you haven't been able to short in this environment, it's been difficult to make money. I mean, in our proprietary account, the only stuff that we've made money in has been our short positions, you know, short, short uh, the British pound, uh, you know, you know, even recently short the short the oil market recently. We're not short anymore, but, you know, it, you know, short the, you know, hedging out exposures in uh, in equities. So it's been a very difficult. I mean, bonds, I mean, making money in bonds, if you, you know, if you have treasury bills, you can make a little bit of money, maybe preserve it. But uh, virtually every bond market has gone down. And, and, and on a risk adjusted basis, at least based on how we track it, it's it's about as bad as it's ever been. Mm -hmm. uh, so which makes me believe that maybe it's overdone. So uh, one of the things I was going to ask you, though, you know, you know, the Elliott Wave concept. One of the things I love about Elliott Wave is there's this whole idea about the psychology of the different moves. And uh, one of the things that can be argued, I've heard other analysts talk about who are in the technical world, is that what if we were to enter a wave five where it becomes a panic, like maybe this is a wave four, and, and psychologically we have a move that overshoots to the downside. I think that's a kind of a tail thing, tail risks uh, that's out there based on your work, you know, what you're showing. But it, so, but even if that's the case, you're talking about what, 15% down from here, something like that, well, maybe a little more? Yeah, a couple of things. One, uh, one of the things that I've done for many, many years um, is we have gone through and we've set price objectives on, you know, the broader market, which is one of the things I think you have to do. And I think you have to put time and I think you have to put price into the same equation. And mm -hmm. if people are unwilling to do that, I think they're, not being totally truthful and honest. And, and I think you have to put the two together. Um, if this is a wave five, uh, you know, leg down right now on my bottoms up model that I do to figure out price objectives, uh, I would say maybe you got five, maybe 7% more downside from here. But contrast that with the fact that as we look at some of our other tools in our toolbox in terms of 
how overbought or how oversold things are, I would just make the observation that I've got less than 10%, actually less than 5% of all the industry groups that we track every week from bottoms up perspective above a simple 40 week moving average. And I got to tell you, when that has happened in the past, it has been time to sort of plug your nose, close your eyes and start leaning into equities a little bit because yep. you are so tremendously beaten up. This is the Warren Buffett principle. Mm -hmm. You got to be greedy when people are fearful and fearful when people are greedy. And you're sort of at these sort of washed out levels. And we've been tracking this sort of analysis going all the way back to the 1960s. And when we come in and see these periods, these have been some pretty good times to buy stocks. And I'll just add one other thing when we're talking about recessions and other things. This work here did not work one time. And that was basically back in 08 and 09. Mm -hmm. this period of time, it didn't work when you had that very long sort of extended downturn in the market, which again, we would need to see some big credit blowups if that was to ultimately be the case. But the last time they did stress tests on banks and those kind of things, they suggested they were in pretty good shape. So I'm not sure you're quite going to get that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so the probabilities are we're closer to a bottom than to a top and that, that yeah. uh, it's, it's, we haven't seen maybe the chart turns that you want to see, but uh, valuations to, you know, you know what the value camp, it's all over the map. Some, so, you know, there's a lot of people that say we're still expensive and, and you can see how they build that case. Uh, you have a CFA, you know how all those numbers work. Uh, I happen to have one too, whether that means anything or not, but I like to see what the fundamentals are saying just to see in context. So it seems like we have a setup for a rally here. Uh, timing wise, we don't really have exactly that time. Let, let's, let me just ask you a quick question. Let's say that we are at an extreme oversold situation right now. What would you be looking at that would actually tell you that the, uh, forget about the overall market, but that, that the individual stocks sectors uh, are, are ready to be bought? Like which sectors would you, be, would you be buying? You don't have to talk about individual names unless you want to, but what areas do you think are going to lead us out of this uh, decline? Yeah, so let me let me answer a couple of these different questions. Like, if we start to do a technical damage assessment, just looking at how many stocks have already and in industry groups have already sort of retraced more than fifty percent of the decline and stuff like that. It's interesting is that the damage at the June lows was actually worse than where we are now. Okay, so that these are the kind of divergences and things that I've been looking for in the marketplace. Mm. And when I would say what could lead us out of this market, well. I find it really interesting to me. And if you're going to be interviewing Louise in the coming weeks, ask her about the rule of alternation. Because I think that's mm -hmm. a really important thing to discuss with her. Um, but you come through and you start looking at things like the XBI, and we're not getting back down to the new lows by any means in here. And I wonder if biotech could be some new leadership. It actually started rolling over in about February of 2021 has been in a down uh, trend for now, uh, almost, uh, you're approaching two years uh, come February. So you're a few months away from that, of course, but you get my point. It's been a very long time. We've already been in a downtrend. Mm -hmm. And while it may got overheated up here at 174, you've come right down to massive areas of support that we'd seen in 2018, 2020, and, and here once again, and made a double bottom on the chart. So I kind of think that this could be one of those areas that could do well. 
in a uh, rising interest rate environment, uh, the discount brokers have been one of the few groups out of our 406 that we follow that are actually making 26-week relative strength new highs. Sorry, 26-week absolute new highs in here right now in our work. So whether it's Schwab or IBKR, they all sort of fit into that category. Uh, they make money on the float. And with uh, two-year yields up the way they are and the Fed continuing to tighten, that's uh, particularly good for their business. So those are the, the bigger area would be more healthcare and more biotech as potential leadership to be looking for. But I'll be looking for good stocks all over the place. And, you know, I happened to be on a flight the other day and while the sales guy was sleeping, what does the uh, technician do? He pulls out charts and starts looking at things. And so as I go through and start looking at charts, you know, some of the things that I've noticed, you know, like Pfizer making a higher low than where we were before and good relative strength in here. Take a look at in terms of healthcare. I mentioned that maybe could be leadership. Higher lows, new relative strength, 52-week relative strength, new highs in here. Uh, take a look at Illumina as another example. Uh, I'm sort of making the double bottom here. I'm stronger. I'm up 10.42% on the week. DXCM having a pretty good day today. And uh, look at the relative strength reversal and the new high sort of reversing the downtrend too. So there's definitely things that can be done in this market and looking around for new leadership. I definitely see some things happening in tech, but also we don't have to forget about energy either, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, look at a chart of like ExxonMobil. Look at a chart of Schlumberger. These are all longer term reversals, having some pretty decent days in here too. Yeah, I, I noticed that. So we run this trend filter every day, and I noticed that just w w watching the uh, the number of stocks that meet the filter tells you a lot about what's happening. And I've noticed that 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 n the number has been increasing lately. But a lot of the a lot of the shares tend to be uh, more in the smaller mid cap area, and it seems to be like there's something going on there. Do you have anything you you could speak to about large versus small, or or you know? you know, more of the uh, fast grower type companies that may be new leadership that not not in the bigger names? Is there anything that is on your radar in that area? Yeah, well, a couple of things. First, uh, when you think back through what has been happening um, in the markets themselves, we really saw the IWM sort of roll over first. And that was, again, back in the uh, time frame of the twenty you know, 2021 period, you made this kind of false breakout and you sort of rolled over. So what typically happens is when the breadth of the market deteriorates and coming back to a chart that we were just looking at a moment ago, looking at market breadth, let me get back there quick. What was interesting to me is coming off of some of these lows, coming off of some of these lows, like we saw in here, Look where the breadth of this market really peaked. Again, it was back in 2021, and it was deteriorating the entire time until we finally got down to a capitulation. But when you come back and you look at a chart of, say, the S&P 500, as an example, it doesn't look anything like that. And it doesn't look that way because really starting in 2021, as the internals of the market were deteriorating, people were chasing and, and sort of rotating into the larger cap safety names out there and that kept the index moving for about another year high another year longer 
And now that this is all rolled over, you're right. We are starting to see some small and mid-cap uh, growth-ish type names starting to act a lot better down here. You can find various funds and stuff, but my biggest example would be just taking a look at the IWM as an example in ETF land, right? This is already corrected right back to the big long-term area of support. You were pre-COVID. Like the average stock has already round tripped pre-COVID, huge surge, and now you're already back to uh, you're already back to where we were uh, pre-COVID levels and making sort of a double-looking bottom on the charts. And look at the relative strength trend. It's just starting to turn higher. I'm encouraged. Okay. I'm not in the mega bear camp. I feel like the mega bear camp, you had an opportunity to get out for more than a year from, uh, you know, February, 2021, all the way up to the January highs of this year. And if you didn't do it, you weren't paying attention to the internals or you weren't listening to your, uh, your terrific advisors. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, 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 you have to be a contrarian sometimes and you have to, sometimes it's, it pays to be a trend follower and sometimes it pays to be a contrarian. And it feels to me like we're in the area of starting to think like a contrarian and easing, easing your way in and increasing risk exposures at the moment in equities. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and, and uh, carefully and also being sure that you understand what you, what you own and, um, it's very interesting to see your work because what I like about what you're doing is you take a bottom-up approach, but you're qualitatively looking at the securities as well from bottom-up approach and, and and classifying them. Not just you know a lot a lot. Of, it's really easy to just quantitatively run conditions and then get summary numbers. It's more difficult and time-consuming to look at bottom-up charts and then to quali qualitatively classify and see things I like about what you're doing. So because you're doing that kind of work. It, I, I believe it allows you to find things that others are not seeing immediately. Sure. Uh, so now I know at your firm you have some uh, some fundamental analysts and economists. When you're cross pollinating, do you cross pollinate conversations with them? And and uh, are you gleaning anything from that group in your firm that is helping you see something that you think is maybe not identified these days? Well, we do cross pollinate and have conversations all the time, and we will collaborate on you know various things that we're seeing out there. The one other thing that I will just say, too, before I dive deeper into that topic, just real quick, is we also do these other things that you haven't seen from us since there's been the pandemic. We created these things we call weekly homework grids. And when we go through and we want to look at, say, uh, you know, large cap stocks or the S&P 500, I've already categorized them into these nice, simple one page grids. And so when you go through here, it kind of tells you where you're at when you're just looking at it from a big picture perspective. And you stand back and look at it like, wow. Okay, a lot of negativity is already sort of there between negative developing, negative trending stocks. And I'll be looking for any sort of evidence that this is beginning to turn. Coming down into small mid-cap land and micro-cap land, I'm starting to get more participation over here in healthcare than I have in other areas. And so that's kind of interesting from my perspective. Now, I'll take these pieces and collaborate with them. Uh, Michael Cantro on our team. This is a cross-pollination piece I put together with them where macro meets the micro um, mm -hmm. perspective. These are their favorite uh, macro select stocks. And then I've sort of technically put them into buckets that align with our thinking in here. So, yeah, we'll collaborate back and forth. Good conversations with, uh, you know, Nancy on the big picture side of things and the, the economy and earnings and all the other pieces that they're talking about. They all look like they're heading uh, meaningfully lower from where we are right here. 
my only challenge and sort of pushback to them a little bit to think about is, hey, the market is already tremendously oversold. It's not going to go in a straight line down. There are going to be relief rallies and reflux rallies along the way. And you can only sort of push things so far before they kind of come back a little bit. And I think you're entering that phase where somewhere probably this month we'll probably get a pretty healthy relief rally in this market. That could take us back to this longer term downtrend resistance line we've talked about on the S&P 500. But that could be 10% higher from here or a little more from where we're at. And that also then sort of aligns with what you typically see from a historical seasonality perspective. And we've had this conversation with our policy analysts in, uh, uh, in Washington, Roberto and those, and, and those folks, and they don't particularly think there is a great alignment fundamentally that presidents can have an impact upon uh, markets and the uh, economy and those kind of things. I just go back and look at the data since 1928, and the data tells me this. Actually suggests that post these sort of midterm election periods, stocks actually do pretty well in uh, October, November, and December. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we will collaborate back and forth, absolutely, uh, with uh, any of our colleagues where we can. Yeah, and one of the things that uh, I think that from a strategy perspective, in my opinion, I'd like to hear your opinion on this, tactically, when you have these bottoms, they don't generally you don't have these V bottoms like we saw after the pandemic. They they they, they tend to have a lot of moves up and down. Sometimes it's just bottom go off to the races. So maybe more of a mean reversion, you know, buying on the dips may actually be relatively okay to do, you know, rather than trying to uh, buy breakouts necessarily. Um, what is your thought on that in terms of tactically? mean reversion type trading versus buying breakouts? I know that's kind of a strange question, but. Well, I think breakouts, I think breakouts are hard right now uh, to try to play because you don't have that many stocks breaking out. You're seeing more downtrend reversals than other pieces. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to find those downtrend reversals. Um, but in terms of buying some of the pullbacks in here, when I go through and again, I look at some of our longer term tools. Now, let's see if I can find it in this list. What I found okay. is that when our 40 week has gotten as washed out as it has, sort of buying mm -hmm. those kind of oversold washed out conditions have been, yes, better than trying to play a breakout because you don't have any stocks really breaking out. Um, and that's kind of a better better process uh, to play these things and sort of take the right time frame with it too. Try to look out six to 12 months instead of trying to buy it on a day-by-day -day trading type basis too. You know, uh, it's always helpful to have clues that you're looking for as a technician to, to give you confirmation. And I wanted to get your opinion on this concept. Is it plausible that the dollar will bottom, will be a good indication that the, the, the dollar will peak, I mean, relative to other currencies alongside as a confirmation that, that the stock market itself is bottoming? And, and, and the, the, the idea would be that that the relative interest rate, you know, the relative hikes relative to the world will kind of be easing and we could, and then the stock market would, that flow will improve, if that makes sense. More risk on, you know, because there's a flight to quality, money flowing back into the US dollar, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think of that? I, I think concept? that makes, I, I think the concept makes sense. And um, I don't have those charts immediately at my fingertips, but yes. Um, I've seen that happen in the past when the dollar has gotten to be uh, 
you know, 120, 150, some of those historical periods, those aligned with uh, very extreme periods in equity markets around the world. And once that uh, eases, yes, we get a big spring back in, in equities. So yes, I would agree with you on that. So the mortgage rates uh, average around 6.66%, highest since 2007. What's your work saying about housing related stocks? Anything interesting, bullish or bearish? Yeah, I mean, if I come in and I just look at some of the, um, you know, housing related home builders and stuff, if things are to be super, super negative in here, I'm not seeing the uh, S&P home builder index breaking down to new lows. If I look at some of the individual stocks and they're like Lennar, it's like they're not breaking the new lows and the relative strength is actually turning higher. So while, while we have six and change percent, uh, you know, mortgage rates out there, it seems like that's going to be healthy for some of these banks ultimately uh, as they're borrowing at the window and still uh, able to make a decent spread better than they have before. But it doesn't seem like the higher rates are ultimately slowing down housing enough yet. I think these higher rates are slowing down cars and used markets and those kind of things. But it's probably going to be a pull ahead factor if I really thought about this, because if you were planning on buying a house in six months or a year and you're seeing 10 year bond yields just, or mortgage 30 year mortgage rates is going up and up and up, you might be more inclined to move a little bit faster. Um, mm-hmm. and, and certainly your uh, significant other or spouse will be like, hey, we got to move now before these things get, you know, way priced out of uh, out of our ability to reach for these things. The family unit doesn't yeah. slow down based upon what happens with 10-year bond yields, right? If uh, Mrs. Johnson- no, exactly. House, and we have demographics that would indicate that that should the demand should be there. Correct. So that's an interesting play. And the valuations are reasonable, at least based on how I'm looking at it. So that's that's an interesting, which would be a contrarian type of thought process, I believe, during, right now. Or it's just a thought process of- Home builders are trading at five times earnings with 30, 30, with 30 plus percent earnings growth. I mean, is that what we're supposed to do? Like, <laughs> it's it sounds plausible to me. Right. And then it just, everybody's just like, they take such a big picture perspective on it and they overlay it and come up with a sweeping conclusion. But then you step back and you look at the charts and you're like, what? That doesn't seem to be making a whole lot of sense in here. And then you look at, you know, uh, you know, a whole bunch of the other home builders out here. Sorry, I meant to put up Lennar and then uh, uh, put up Horton in here, DHI. You know, it's, it's, it's they're not breaking the new lows. And then you come in and you'll look at people are going to fix up their homes. And Home Depot sort of looks like a start of a double bottom on a weekly chart. By the way, for all the listeners, I like to look more at weekly charts right now than daily charts or even shorter term charts because I feel like there is so much noise and there's so many news repeaters out there that keep trying to amplify up some of these stories that I want a little bit of a longer term perspective because when you're working with large institutions that have got not just hundreds of thousands of dollars, they got millions if not billions of dollars under management, they're not trying to day trade this market. They find it way too difficult. And um, therefore, looking at the weekly chart gives you a better perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So we're heading into the holiday season. Um, what what do the charts say about the holiday, the retail sector going into the holiday season? Does it look bullish? Does it look like it's still in a downtrend? 
what, what, what does your work say about retail? Well, I kind of always like to look at, you know, Starbucks as sort of my proxy to a degree, right? Overpriced bean water is kind of how I think about this, right? And if people are still out buying three, $5, you know, cappuccinos, Starbucks type things, they feel like they can quote unquote treat themselves on things because that is clearly an item you could easily, easily set aside and not have to do. Would you not agree? Absolutely. If they're still out there buying expensive coffee, then I would think that the holiday shopping season uh, probably can probably can do okay. If I go out and look at some of the hometown favorites like Target, you know, the chart hasn't made a new low in here. It's already been hit. I've been hearing some interesting commentary from our fundamental person, uh, Peter Keith, who looks at some of the bargain basement uh, type uh, closeout places, and they've got plenty of inventory. So I would think that a lot of uh, people are going to be looking for deals this year and going to Ollie's or TJ Maxx or some of these other places where the charts actually look pretty good and you're making a relative strength new high here uh, are probably going to be where some of the shopping is going to get done. I think consumers are going to want deals and I think that they're going to be expecting them. Mm-hmm. Go to a whole place uh, like a, go to Apple. I don't know if the iPhone 14 is going to go over well at the higher price points, but, you know, Apple's going to do well as a company because they got a tremendous amount of cash and uh, they're going to be making more money off their cash hoard than they have ever before. So that's going to help them from an earnings perspective and maybe not from a uh, product sales perspective. Um, We also could look at Costco as uh, some of the holiday shopping season. Chart's not particularly great here. This is your classic definition of your head and shoulders top, um, but you got to be careful on that one. If I was to go back and look at Macy's, I mean, we're in a downtrend on Macy's. doesn't look like it's return, uh, turning higher yet, so that may not be the place where people go shopping. Maybe they'll go back online to a degree and think about Amazon, but uh, haven't made a new lower low yet here on the charts, but been really rejected at this consolidation range. Yeah, look at that relative strength line. Just just marching straight down in that consolidation, breaking that range. So it might be a little bit of a different uh, retail stock scenario that you would normally think of. Correct. Um, Very, very interesting. Well, is there anything that we've, those are basically all the questions I had for you. You've been really great just outlining it. It's great to see all these tools that you could pull up on the fly. I uh, appreciate you uh, showing us that. Is there anything that that I've missed that you want to talk about, about the markets or about your firm or anything like that, that that, uh, you think we should talk about? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things. One, if there's people that really, really like to look at charts, you know, on the weekends, if they shoot me an email, craig.johnson at psc.com. I have, uh, I I bought years and years ago for Piper, uh, the Mansfield chart books. And uh, I just send people a PDF of those. They can have them. I don't charge for them. They're happy to, uh, if they like charts. And uh, these are the charts that I uh, throw out to people on a weekend. The, the entire book, the New York, the uh, S&P 500, et cetera. These are what the charts ultimately look like. They won't be marked up, but there's nine charts on a page. And if you like to flip through charts, you're all welcome to, uh, to get on that list. I'm happy to send that out to people for nothing. Because I like people who like charts, period, is how I kind of look at the world. Now, if I was... That's nice. 
Yeah. If I was, I, I like more friends and maybe that's a good way to have more friends. We can talk about <laughs> charts together. Um, but if I sort of sum everything up that I'm thinking about with this market and what I'm telling institutional accounts, and I'll tell you the sentiment from institutional accounts is quite negative. Everybody is pretty bared up. The AAII numbers tell us that. But for me, I still think where you should be positioned is overweight energy, overweight healthcare, and I'm overweight select parts of technology. I'm underweight services, communication, media, and staples at this point in time. And when I go through and I start looking at Com Media, the AT&Ts, the Verizons, the consumer staples, where you got General Mills or you've got uh, Colgate or you got those kind of companies, I'm starting to see some of the more defensive names starting to fade. And I'm starting to see other parts of the market starting to turn higher. I'd also say to people, given how oversold everything is, now is not the time to sort of run from this market. Uh, now is when you want to sort of just start nibbling at the market just a little bit and maybe think about it as taking four or five bites at the apple and sort of leaning into it a little bit in here because um, we are so oversold. And everything that I've said here today, I basically have done for myself too. So there's no... I'm, I'm eating my own cooking. Eating your own cooking. I'm eating nice. my own cooking. And I just I like to tell people that straight up. When there's some people that I've talked to that are super negative on the market, I ask them, are you short the market then? They're like, oh, no, oh, no, that's too dangerous. Why are you so negative if you're not willing to short the market with your own money? I mean, you got to put your money where your mouth is at. And I got to tell you, I'm more invested today than I have been in quite some time. Yeah, I mean, that, it's interesting. There's people change their risk profile at the wrong time. And it's it's uh, you have to resist that. Uh, I remember I, I went on stockcharts.com talking with Dave Keller, you know, closer to the highs and all, everything was breaking down. And it's like re reduced re risk. Uh, it you know, makes a lot of sense. Of course, at that time, the average individual investor did not want to do that. So it's good to have discipline. Listening to your work helps you uh, stay with a level head. So thank you so much for sharing everything that you, uh, all this great work that you're doing. You're most welcome and happy to do it anytime. The information in this podcast is informational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. WealthNet Investments is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where WealthNet Investments and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure.